Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host, Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, we've made it to episode 50. Yes, indeed. Uh, And a lot has happened over this past uh, half century or so of episodes. And the pace of change, really, has been quite remarkable. I mean, look, just last week... We were bemoaning the fact that non-PBC fighters can't even get a mention on Fox broadcasts. And yet on Friday, one non-PBC boxer figured out how to get himself some exposure on the network. Uh, It was Tyson Fury, of course, who showed up for the first episode of WWE Smackdown on Fox and went somewhat viral, drawing with the wrestlers, presumably calling them all dossers, (laughs) and clambering over the barrier in an attempt to get at them. So uh, if you're Terrence Crawford, you should be taking some notes. (laughs) Uh, yeah, maybe, but uh, when I think about loud, over-the-top personalities that translate well to the world of pro wrestling, I'm not sure Terrence Crawford is the first one that comes to mind. Tyson Fury, though. Yes. Wow, how did this never occur to me before? He's he's maybe the most natural fit for WWE yep. that boxing has ever seen, and, and I can't yep. believe I didn't realize before now that this is where his career is destined to go. I mean, we even talked about the Undertaker meme in the in the 12th round <laughs> of the Wilder true. fight, and I That's still didn't true. connect the dots. Uh, yeah. So, And same goes for Wilder, by the way. I, I could see uh, them both landing in WWE oh, yeah. someday, uh, but Fury even more so than Wilder, his look and his persona and his mic skills. Oh, uh, my God, the promos he would cut. Yeah, I mean, he basically cuts them already for boxing. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's not a lot to learn there. And good uh, good call by WWE having him get into it with Braun Strowman. That is a perfect match physically. Um, so, you know, I, I'm a one-day-a-year wrestling fan at this point. Okay. I watch WrestleMania, and that's it. Uh, so give me Fury versus Strowman at WrestleMania in 2020. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very much here for that. And you've got to figure, look, if Fox is actually thinking already about getting the Fury Wilder rematch, I mean, talk about great slow burn buildup. Yeah. Um, it's just, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, and the other thing with Tyson Fury, we've already seen him, you know, put on ridiculous costumes. He could run to the ring dressed as Batman. We've already seen that. <laughs> right, right. For example, it's just the natural. So, I mean, yeah. for the SmackDown thing, he was dressed in the old suit with no shirt yes. underneath, uh, which, uh, again, normal civilians don't do that. You have to be... <laughs> Uh, a wrestler or the heavyweight champion of the world or a rock star. That's pretty much, those are the people who can get away with that. Exactly. Especially that suit. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We actually have lots of real fighting to talk about this week. Um, and alas, some scheduled fighting that didn't actually happen. Um, we will be looking at Saturday's abbreviated Showtime card from Flint, Michigan. Uh, we will also be discussing the newly released Boxing Hall of Fame ballots. There's plenty to talk about there. Uh, but foist to New York City, where on zone <sighs> Gennady Golovkin arguably got away with one on Saturday night against Sergei Derevyanchenko. Uh, the scores were unanimous, 115-112 twice and 114-113, which certainly... Points to a close fight, but it was arguably even closer than that. Um, a first-round knockdown by Golovkin really helping out the Kazakh Thunder, who honestly at times looked a little bit more like a Kazakh rain shower in the face of uh, Derevyachenko's aggression. Um, look, we've seen Golovkin in some highly controversial decisions uh, lately, um, but generally being on the wrong end of them. Um there was a bit of dissent over his narrow win over Daniel Jacobs in that same Madison Square Garden arena in 2017. Um, but nothing like this. The crowd was very, very unhappy. Um, Eric, how did you score this? And did you ever imagine you would hear Triple G having to contend with 
boos from the crowd as he tried to do his post-fight interview. Uh, certainly not at MSG, no. Uh, no. The idea of him getting booed post-fight would have seemed nearly impossible. Um, but it was also very unfair. Uh, Triple G didn't score the fight, people. Right. Uh, though, I get it. They were booing the outcome more so than the fighter. At least I'd like to think that's what they were booing. Yeah. Um, I personally wouldn't have booed the outcome. Uh, it was a close fight. I have no problem with a close scorecard either way. But I had Golovkin winning 115-112, the same as two of the judges. Uh, it's my understanding that the majority of the media at ringside had Derevianchenko narrowly winning. That's totally fine. I am not arguing with anyone. I wrote down the words close round in my mm. notes seven times. Wow. Seven rounds out of 12, I wrote, I wrote those words down. Uh, so nobody's scorecard is gospel here. For what it's worth, uh, and, you know, you don't judge a fight based on CompuBox, we all know that, but uh, the final stats were very even. Derevianchenko threw 18 more punches over 12 rounds, so one and a half more punches per round. Golovkin landed 13 more punches over 12 rounds, so basically one more punch per round. So that's basically an even fight, but Golovkin scored the fight's only knockdown and only 10-8 round, so... 114, 113 Golovkin. That, that sounds pretty fair to me. Uh, for what it's worth, I thought Golovkin clearly won the 12th round, and all three judges gave him that round, one of the few that they agreed on. Uh, so credit to him for pulling that one out when the fight seemed to be hanging in the balance. But so many rounds, it boiled down to perception of one or two punches here or there. Did you think this guy or the other guy landed the most effective shot or two in that round. And, and did that make the difference in the round that maybe the other guy was edging it, but this guy landed what you thought was maybe the most effective punch. It, it was that kind of fight. Um, I, I have a couple more things to comment on, but they're not about the scoring. So maybe before I get to them, do, do you want to tell me how you scored it? I had it 14, 13 for Derevianchenko, and I can see a 15, 12 score for either guy. Okay. So I would agree with you on the closeness of it there. I mean, there were a couple of rounds where I was like, mm, and, and, um, <laughs> that's, uh, that's your version of me writing down close rounds. Pres pres yeah, precisely. Um, yeah, exactly. Because you would see, you know, Derevianchenko with his fast combinations, but you'd also see Golovkin score with a beautiful hook. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, unquestionably, I, I, I agree with you that it was a very close fight. There was a period there where the DAZN, uh, guys were giving Derevianchenko like round after round after round, and I actually gave Golovkin a round or two in there as well. Yeah. Didn't think he was necessarily running away with it, but I agree with you. Sort of, I think it was a 15 12 or closer decision either side, I think yep. is fine. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so, like I said, I have a couple of quick comments not about the scoring. Uh, first, the controversy over whether Derevianchenko's cut suffered in round two was caused by a punch or a butt proved immaterial. Uh, so great job there by his cut man to get that under control. Um, second, that cut was maybe the best thing that could have happened to him because he mm -hmm. fought with real urgency after yeah. that. Uh, who knows if he ends up showing as much as he did end up showing without suffering that cut in round two. Uh, and, and third comment. This was an excellent fight with a yes. thrilling 10th round in particular. Um, and it just made me think, you know, when Triple G came up with the phrase big drama show, there was actually very little drama in any <laughs> of his fights back then. Now there is consistently as he yeah. slipped from an extraordinary fighter to one who opponents can compete with and make great two-way fights with. And Kieran, that's something we've been talking about for some time now. We've been asking whether Golovkin has been slipping or whether his close fights against Canelo and Jacobs and 
even his occasionally difficult showing against Cal Brook said more about the quality of opposition than about Gennady getting older. We knew uh, going into this fight that Derevyanchenko was good, um, but I feel, uh, I don't think I'm going out on a limb here, I feel prime Golovkin knocks him out. Um, Mm -hmm. So can we now put the discussion to bed and agree that Golovkin is on the downslope? Yes, I think so. Um, And and I think... And in the same way that we've discussed in the past about whether he is or he isn't, we've brought up and talked about this particular reason why he might be. And and, and I think it showed up very clearly on Saturday night. Um, When Gennady was in his pomp, when he was just knocking people over, the key to his success, it wasn't just his power. It wasn't just his punch variety. It wasn't the fact that he'd suddenly realized that doing a looping shot over the top onto the top of somebody's head was the way to go or an uppercut was the way to go or the fact that he hit like a mule. The real key to Gennady Golovkin's success was his footwork. I mean, he exhausted opponents because he cut off the ring so well. He wouldn't let them escape, however much they tried. And so he was always on them so they couldn't breathe. They were always in the right range for his punches so they could get no relief. And he hasn't done that for a long time, or, or at least his opponents have prevented him from being able to. He he didn't do that in the first couple of rounds against Brooke. Um, Jacobs really outmoved him during their fight, um, and he couldn't trap Canelo in their fights. Like, he was able to move him against the ropes, but then he couldn't keep him there, whereas a prime Golovkin would have done. Um, and it was the same against Drevianchenko, and then some. It was Sergei who was dictating the movement of the fight. Uh, he, he was making Golovkin move the way that he wanted him to. Um, and, and that's not to take anything away from Drevianchenko, who had a great plan, uh, um, uh, stuck to it once he, you know, as you said, once he really got into gear, mm-hmm. he executed it exceptionally well, didn't let the knockdown deter him, didn't let that cut deter him. But, but Golovkin just isn't who he was. Without that footwork, yep. he's a guy with a good chin, a solid jab, and the heavy hands, which makes him really, really good. Um, you know, and he still, you know, eats out a win against another really, really good guy. But it's not the Golovkin we used to know. Um, and it's early days, but Saturday night did not suggest that leaving Abel Sanchez was necessarily a good thing. I mean, we don't know what would have happened with that Gennady in that same condition, uh, in that same age, with the same number of miles on his odometer with Abel in, in the corner. But I don't know. It's, it's hard not to imagine that Abel might have given him better instructions and perhaps calmed him down a bit more. Gennady's facial expressions and body language in the corner particularly over the second half of that fight they were terrible eh i mean he he looked confused he looked tired right. he he looked a bit lost uh, uh the, the the design guys called it at some point but i think it was a couple of rounds early i'm like damn he just looks bad in that corner so um you know he looked he looked panicky so yeah, and and just speaking of, of the design guys and something that they mentioned that i think we should note here that the commentators speculated that Golovkin was battling an illness this week. So I don't know that I, I still, I look at that and I look at a guy who was uh, slowed down by age and, and just taking the next step in the gradual downward progression that we have been seeing for a few fights. But if you wanted to continue to convince yourself that triple G is still a top five pound for pound guy, I suppose you you can cling to that if you like the and and chalk this up to him being sick and and that you know if if he was that may have helped to account for the way yep. that he seemed to tire 
more quickly in this fight than we're accustomed to seeing. Yeah, and I was and I was talking earlier with um, some folks who were at the who had the fight and were with Gennady all during fight week, and they did say that he seemed quieter and a bit more withdrawn in fight week. That he was doing fist bumps instead of handshakes, all those little mm. telltale signs right. that somebody might be a bit sick. And I can't even imagine what it would be like going into doing something like that in well in any situation, but less but least of all if you're in less than prime conditions. So indeed, maybe. Um, but talking of Abel Sanchez, as we mm. were, um, so when Golovkin, you know, got tagged a few times against Brooke, when he struggled a l- relatively against Daniel Jacobs, and people would say to Abel, people like myself, would say to Abel, hey, what's going on? Abel would sort of look at you knowingly with a, and say, you know, huh, you think Canelo's going to fight us if he just continues to look really good? Sort of suggesting that he was deliberately tanking a few rounds. Um, that was all part of the plan to look a bit vulnerable. Um, well, Abel isn't around anymore, and he's actually fought Canelo twice now. Um, so it was probably bogus when Abel said it, and it would probably be bogus if Jonathan Banks said it, that that's, that's what, it was all part of the plan. We have to get him back in a third time. But does Canelo now, after looking at that on Saturday night, having publicly closed the door on a third flight with Golovkin, does he now look at that and think, Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. On the second (laughs) thoughts, I do want that third fight. Yeah, I mean, he should be thinking that. Uh, If he is remotely interested, you know, if that door was not, in fact, all the way closed, he had to be watching this fight, licking his lips. Golovkin was a tiny bit past his peak when they fought the first time, a tiny bit worse than that when they fought the second time. Now he appears to be another level below that, and Canelo pretty much keeps getting better, so he's what, a three to one or four to one favorite if they fight next spring? Um, You know, so if Canelo has truly decided he's done with Triple G, then maybe this changes nothing. But if Canelo was engaged in gamesmanship and waiting Golovkin out, then I think he saw what he needed to see on Saturday night. Uh, If he was waiting him out, if he saw this fight, he knows he doesn't need to wait any longer. Uh, So let's look at where Golovkin goes from here. If Canelo does continue to look elsewhere, if if he just isn't interested in that third fight, no matter what, then the most likely next step for Golovkin is probably a rematch with Derevyanchenko or or possibly a bout against Demetrius Andrade. At this point, would you make him a favorite for either of those? I have to say I wouldn't. Um, And I think it's important not to oversell the situation, right? Like he just pulled out a win against the guy who himself was perhaps only a round or two away from beating Jacobs. It's not like he's suddenly getting turned over by scrubs or anything. But but yes, it, you, you know, as you sort of just alluded to, you could look at all these things in isolation and go, oh, well, this is the reason or there's this excuse. But right. it, the, the decline does appear to be borderline precipitous now um you know there was a time where he could bail himself out with a with a punch from an unexpected direction or you could see him figuring the guy out and saying oh this doesn't work this doesn't work let's try this and and you knew he'd pull it out even if he was off to a slow start and it always felt as if he was the bully in there even if if it was taking him a while but arguably now in his last four big fights he's been the bullied a little bit uh, for at least part of the time um, like you said, it's possible that he's sick, and so that he would, if he was able to turn up unsick, maybe there would be a big uptick in, in his performance. Um, but yeah, and again, look, a close contested draw with Canelo, a close contested loss to Canelo, a close contested win over Drevianchenko. That doesn't suggest the guy's shot, but you know that he is. He is on a a downward slope, and and Derevianchenko was the guy who came in there with a plan. Um, so I think. 
I would make Derevyanchenko a slight favorite in a in a rematch, not necessarily an overwhelming one, but a slight favorite. But I think I'd make Andrade at this point a very big favorite. I think I think it's a nightmare style. We've talked about this before. I just you know, the old Golovkin, you think, yeah, okay, Andre's going to make it difficult for him, but Gennady's going to get him. I don't know. This right. this version of Golovkin, I I don't think Golovkin wants to go near Andre. Um, I kind of suspect that Canelo isn't into the idea either, and, and I, I'm pretty sure that you don't think that Canelo's into the idea of fighting <laughs> Andre either. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, th- nobody who is already a, a superstar uh, should be all that interested in Andre. I'm sorry. That, <laughs> right. I mean, that's just how the, how it works. Yeah. The risk reward ratio is not there. Um, I guess what could get if that fight were to get signed, Golovkin against Andre, what could give. Golovkin backers hope is that we haven't seen Andrade in a real tough fight. Sure. How does he sure. respond when a big puncher is is coming at him and, and they're slugging it out in the sure. late rounds of, of just a really hard fight? We haven't seen Andrade in that sort of situation. But barring that, stylistically, yeah, he see it seems like it's going to be a nightmare for this slightly slowed down version of Golovkin to catch up with him. Yeah, yeah. All right, so there were two fight cards on at the same time on Saturday night, and conveniently, uh, Golovkin and Derevyanchenko walked to the ring after Saturday night Showtime card had ended, uh, and that's at least partly because that card was shorter than planned. Uh, it was a doubleheader instead of a tripleheader. The planned main event, Claressa Shields going for a third world title at a third weight by taking on Ivana Habazin, was canceled after Habazin's trainer, James Bashir Ali, was attacked from behind at Friday's weigh-in, bloodied and knocked unconscious, and taken to the hospital where he underwent facial surgery. Kieran, obviously neither of us were there, and there is no video footage of the attack, but based Mm -hmm. on what you've read and seen, what can you tell us about the situation? Well, as we record this, and as Barry Tompkins uh, noted on the broadcast on Saturday night, it appears that police suspect the alleged perpetrator of the assault maybe Artie Mack, Shields' brother. Mm. Um, there was a lot of whataboutism on Twitter. You can always rely on boxing Twitter to come up with the wrong <laughs> take, um, particularly from fans of Shields. Um, and, and yes, whatever initially set off the confrontation between Bashir and the Shields camp, there's, there's certainly video evidence that the trainer was saying some unpleasant things to yes. Clarissa's sister. Yep. Uh, very unpleasant, actually, um, including threatening to slap her. Uh, it, it's the kind of stuff... That in reasonable society, i.e. non-boxing society, is beyond the pale and, and reprehensible. But, you know, Clarissa didn't respond to them other than to sort of say to Bashir, that's, look, this isn't the place for that. Her, her team ushered her sister away. And that should have been the end of it. That should have been just another day in the horrible cesspool that is life in boxing. <laughs> um, yep. But as nasty as some of what he said was... Bashir did not, contrary to what some have asserted, have it coming, quote, or deserve it. Uh, nobody, young or old, deserves to be hit in the back of the head, which is what appears to have happened, or at the very least, hit from behind. Um, you want to be a tough guy? You want to make a statement? Or you want to defend a relative or, or a friend? Well, it, you, at least you do it in the, to the person's face. Yeah. Or, frankly, you let Clarissa deliver the revenge in a 20-foot <laughs> by 20-foot square, right. which is how things normally get sorted in boxing. That's the beauty of it. You don't go and punch someone in the back of the head and run away. Um, so whatever punishment comes the perpetrator's way, whoever indeed it is, well, he does have it coming. Um, not only has he revealed himself to be a coward, he's injured an old man, uh, he's cost Shields and Habazine and folks associated with them a payday, turned what should have been a very happy homecoming 
to Flint into a terrible advertisement for an already troubled town. Um, yeah, and I guess, you know, Shields didn't initially do herself any favor. She did a Facebook Live very shortly afterwards and probably should have counted to 10 before she did that. Uh, she said some of the right, she said some good things. She, she said a couple things that seemed a bit too cavalier. But you could tell also as reality set in, um, she responded with, I thought, far greater grace with some very conciliatory and understanding statements. You could almost feel the gravity of the whole thing settling on her over the course of 24 hours. And poor Ivana Habazin. Yeah. Also, clearly deeply, deeply distressed by the whole thing. Um, uh, fundamentally, it was one guy being a, a complete dick, but it's also another reason why so many people dump unboxing and why it's sometimes so hard to find a good reason for them not to. Yeah, this this sport is not always easy to defend. Um, I will defend uh, Shields just against the people who go so far as to kind of hold her responsible for Agreed. sort of the sort of people she associates with. Uh, you know, y- you can't hold her responsible for what people around her do. Uh, and I feel pretty confident saying that this is not a Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan situation. Right. Um, at this, on looking at the other side, certainly. As disappointing as it is that the fight didn't happen, nobody should question Habazin pulling out. She had to under under the circumstances. Uh, And S.H.I.E.L.D. certainly seemed understanding of that. You know, she wanted the fight to go on, but she wasn't twisting any arms. Um, Not sure what else to say except hashtag boxing. (laughs) This sport, uh, there there is a lawlessness and chaos that is ever-present with boxing. And we frequently see things we've never seen before. And uh, this indeed is a new one. Uh, Fight canceled because trainer beaten unconscious at weigh-in. Never seen that before. Hopefully we don't see it again. Uh, And it's just just bad for everyone. Uh, Both fighters, the fans, Showtime, everyone. And, and and to sort of follow, I mean, to endorse what you said about how, you know, Shields can't be uh, held responsible. It's it's very rarely actually the fighters who are responsible for all this nonsense. Mm-hmm. It's always and it's often very rarely the core elements of the entourage. It's the people who hang on to the hangers on in the entourage. Like the further <laughs> out you get in the the more likely they are to do in, in just stupid uh, stuff like this. It's. And yeah, anyone who spent enough time around boxing, there are hangers on who hang on to the hangers on who hang on to the hangers on. And yeah, it's just, it's yeah. Hashtag boxing. I think that's, I could, yeah, we could have just done that. I could have just been a 10 second segment. <laughs> we could have, but you could have said hashtag boxing. I could have said hashtag boxing. And then we could have talked about some actual boxing. Should we, should we go right <laughs> to that, that part? Let's okay. Because there were that. still two televised <laughs> fights that did happen. So uh, yeah, let's talk about those. The, the new main event featured our most recent guest here on the podcast, uh, my fellow Philadelphian Jerron Boots Ennis, and he did his burgeoning reputation no harm with a dominating third-round stoppage of Damian Fernandez in welterweight action. Kieran, what did you make of Ennis's performance, and how bad do we both look for the fact that neither of us selected him <laughs> in our Rising Stars draft? You know, I feel kind of stupid. <laughs> <laughs> he was on my almost list, I swear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know... We had him close, but he was still on the outside looking in, and that doesn't seem like the brightest choice either of us ever made. <laughs> Fortunately, no real-world consequences for that. Um, um, but yes, look, it is time, as we said in the preview, and as Raul Marquez said afterwards, for for Boots to step up a level. Uh, it's time for us all to find out what happens when he's in deep. But what I like about him, watching him, it's not just his natural talent. What makes me think that he'll be able to... T- to, to, to do very well when he does move up. Like I said, it's not just his natural talent, which he clearly has in spades. I mean, his speed's ridiculous. Um, and it's just it's all-round natural athleticism. But it's also that he makes good choices in the ring, like veteran choices. Um, 
he knows when to go upstairs. He he knows. I really like. He did some good fainting in there, eh? And like he's very good at fainting, getting the opponent to react, and like anticipating what the reaction is going to be, and so responding to that. He did that several times. Um, he knows when to fight righty. He knows when to fight lefty. Um, he was faced with a guy who had his guard up high the whole time, but he didn't just pound away on his gloves with straight punches like a lot of young fighters would do. He went to the body to try to get him to drop the guard. And then he found a way to just punch around it. And that's how he ultimately ended up stopping the guy. He, he punched around that guard. And and Fernandez went from being kind of defiant early on mm-hmm. to submissive. And Ennis basically beat the fight out of him in, in two plus rounds. Um, yeah, sure. We need to see him step up a notch. But gosh, there's a lot to like about him so far, I think. Um, in the co-main... Uh, Michigan heavyweight Jermaine Franklin knocked down Pavel Schauer in the 6th and 10th rounds, scored a wide unanimous decision win to remain unbeaten. Uh, he was lighter than we've seen him before. He was livelier than we've seen him before. Was this third appearance on Showtime enough to guarantee him a fourth? Because we went into this saying this is a do or die for him. And did you see enough to suggest that there may actually, despite appearances over his previous two uh, uh, showings on Showtime, there may actually be a legit prospect buried in there after all. I don't know. I, I, I still don't see a prospect to get excited about. Uh, to me, Jermaine Franklin has mastered the art of winning unimpressively. Yeah. Uh, I don't think he fought any better this time than the last two. I just think he had a more favorable style in front of him. A uh, bigger, slower guy with a really big head that he doesn't move, <laughs> so it's hard to miss. Um, but S- S- Shower was tough and and came to fight. I'm not saying he was a pushover. It was just a, a better style for a guy with decent boxing skills to look good against. But Franklin did score the knockdowns, and to an extent, I'd say that second knockdown in round 10 yeah. might have saved him from the three strikes and you're out cliche. Yeah. Um, I'll say this. Good for Franklin for coming in nine pounds lighter than last time and uh, 14 pounds lighter than the time before that. Shows he's trying. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said last week, as long as he remains an unbeaten American heavyweight, he'll keep getting chances. Uh, yeah. But uh, I'm still waiting for him to show me something. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way. It was sloppy, wasn't it? It yeah. was, uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, uh, let's move on to something a little bit different. Um This year's ballots for the International Boxing Hall of Fame have been mailed out. Uh, I have mine. Do you have yours? I I do indeed. I'm I'm looking at them right now. You may end up hearing some uh, papers rustling in the background as we uh, continue this segment. Yes. Uh, Very good. Very good. Sound effects. We like that. Um, (laughs) And uh, um, boy, I tell you, so this year the ballots are absolutely stacked, Uh, partly uh, because of a new requirement, which we discussed on the podcast the other week with the Hall's Ed Brophy, uh, that fighters in the modern category are now eligible just three years after their last bout, as opposed to the previous uh, requirement, which was five years. Um, This year's first-time nominees in the modern category include Bernard Hopkins, Juan Manuel Marquez, Shane Mosley, Tim Bradley, Israel Vasquez, Carl Froch, Sergio Martinez, Antonio Tarva, and Jorge Arce, who are all newly eligible, and the likes of Diego Corrales, Joel Casamayor, and Vianney Bungu, who have been eligible for a while, but who are nonetheless appearing on the ballot for the first time. And that's in addition to holdovers, including Rafael Marquez, Nigel Ben, Ricky Hatton, and many others. Um, as we also discussed with Ed, there's no longer a limit on how many nominees can be inducted in this category. Uh, we, as voters, can vote for up to five. The top three vote-getters are guaranteed induction. There's no change there. 
But anyone who secures votes from 80% or more of voters is inducted, however many uh, that should be. Uh, so there's lots and lots to go over here. Um, and I guess there's sort of two sim- sort of parallel discussions. Um, uh, granted that we've only had the, the ballots for just a couple of days, and perhaps I haven't done a deep dive. I, I no, don't know if you have. But, nope. um, and I guess so there's a at first blush, who do you suspect you are most likely to vote for? And who do you think is most likely to get in if that's different? Um, so I guess let's just sort of break down the ballot and I'll, I'll kind of talk it through. And uh, by the end of the conversation, I might arrive at uh, most okay. of who I'm planning to vote for and okay. most of who I think is going to get in. But l- let's start with the slam dunks that Hopkins and Marquez yep. are everyone should be. There is no excuse not to vote for either of them unless you're one of those extreme PED hardliners right. who, because you strongly suspect Juan, Mel, Juan Manuel Marquez uh, was on something that you're not going to vote for him. Barring that, those two, they're just slam dunks completely. Yeah. Um, looking over all the other new guys, I mean, I think Shane Mosley is almost in the same category of slam dunkness. So, you know, I'm going through each of the new guys. It's like amazing how many of them are on that borderline of like guys I could see myself voting for at some mm-hmm. point and see I could potentially consider Hall Hall worthy even if I'm not going to vote for them this year mm-hmm. and and guys who like just barely missed that but I could be convinced. Like, you know, like Jorge Arce probably not for me, but I could see others voting for him. Mm-hmm. Timothy Bradley probably yes for me, but not necessarily this time. Uh, Vayani Bungu, borderline, maybe leaning toward no. Casamayor, borderline, leaning toward yes. Corrales, he's right up there with Casamayor, was a little bit bigger star and more exciting, but I think Casamayor was the slightly better fighter. Of course, they proved that in the ring to an extent. Uh, Carl Frotch, probably yes, but maybe not this time, right out of the gate with the with this difficult ballot. Sergio Martinez, really in a similar, uh, similar level to, to Carl Frotch. Uh, Antonio Tarver, probably not. Israel Vasquez, maybe eventually. There's just, mm-hmm. there are all these guys that I can really see a decent case either way. And then you've got Rafael Marquez, who I yep. really felt should have gone in last year. And now it, I, I'm, I'm pissed for him because of what's happened with the ballot. Yeah. He might've missed his chance or at least his, his best chance for a while anyway. Um, and it's, you know, I guess that extends to, the, the three guys you mentioned who are on the ballot for the first time but have been eligible longer, it's a shame that Corrales, Casamayor, and Bungu weren't on the ballot in some of those weaker years, yep. like when Hamed, Riddickbo, and, and Ray Mancini all got in one year. You'd think one of them might have had a shot, or more than one of them even, yep. in a year like that. Or, or there was a year when Hector Camacho Sr. was the headliner, essentially. So the good news is, the ballot is going to be stacked for years to come. We're not going to have any years for a long time where people are getting in who don't deserve to get in. I think it's going to be, there will be borderline guys missing out, but as more names keep getting added to this uh, in the years to come, there are always going to be at least three reasonable choices to get in there for the next several years. So that's the good news. So anyway, looking at this, I'm sure that I am voting for Hopkins, Marquez, the other Marquez, and Shane yeah. Mosley. Those four guys are getting my votes. I'm undecided on the fifth one. I have not mm. done my full deep dive to do that. And as for who's likely to get in, again, I, I think Hopkins, Juan Manuel Marquez, and Mosley are are pretty close to slam dunks here. The first two full-on slam dunks, Shane Mosley uh, just right on their heels. And, and 
I would say because there are this many worthy guys to consider on the ballot, I'm not expecting us to have four or more people right. over 80% this year. So I right. think it'll be those three. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, no, I agree with you. That, that's really what I put down. I mean, Hopkins and Juan Manuel Marquez are sort of that, that class above. They are slam dunks. The PD issue, I wonder if that is going to affect at all. I, I actually don't think it is going to affect the voting. Yeah. I'm not. I, I haven't decided if it's going to affect mine. Um, and and I, and I should note that if it's, it might not affect Marquez, but it might affect. It's mostly Mosley. specifically. Yeah. Exactly. And and it's an interesting one, right? Because we know that Shane um, took PEDs for at least one fight mm-hmm. um, because he admitted it. Um, right. And so for me, it's like it's a bit of a it's a bit of a dilemma. And I'm not saying that I would never vote for him. Um, you know, and I'm not saying that doesn't throw up the issue of what to do, but with other PD associated boxes, but it's like, if you've got someone who has either failed a test or is admitted to taking PAD PDs, do you just ignore that? Or do you at least think, well, you're not going in the hole first time, but then of course, then you've got that issue with Marquez because he didn't test positive of course, cool, but, but does anybody really think he was just ingesting urine at the end of his career? I mean, right. you know, so, so I don't know. And I find that a bit interesting and I haven't really, dive deep enough into it but i'm started sort of starting to get a bit of a sense of what baseball writers had to deal with for for a long time so i don't know so i don't know what i'll do with shane um uh and even though i have my suspicions as we should i think probably about marquez uh, suspicions gonna keep people out i mean i don't know um as for some of the others i will also vote for rafael marquez i think i probably voted for him last year i don't remember um but it's in the same way that lots of people say they were at fights that they weren't at i'm going to just go ahead and say that they did, whether <laughs> okay. I did or not. um I th- I'm, th- I'm with you on some of the others like i think i would like to see tim bradley get into the hall it doesn't necessarily have to get in on the first ballot but i th- i would like i think he's got a good enough uh, resume uh carl frotch and sergio martinez also, not least because, my God, especially over the last few years of their careers, God, the quality of opposition was just incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they fought everybody they could. So I'd be very happy if Roger Martinez got in. Not Wouldn't be upset if they didn't get in on the first ballot. Um, but for me, Hopkins, Rafa Marquez, and Juan Manuel Marquez, even though I recognize that if that's because I don't vote for Shane Mosley, there's an element of some kind of hypocrisy there that I still have to work out, and I guess we all have to work through at some point over these years. Right, well, and you brought up the the baseball writers, and I've, obviously, I do not have a vote for the Baseball Hall of Fame, but it has always been my stance that you can't have a, a baseball hall of fame without Barry Bonds, the best hitter of my mm. lifetime and Roger mm. Clemens, the best pitcher of my lifetime, mm. a baseball hall of fame without them just seems absurd to me. So, uh, I do get the, to vote for the boxing hall of fame. Uh, my general stance is that unless I think the only reason that you put up hall of fame type numbers was be, exactly. yeah. So, I mean, look, Shane Mosley and I, can't say that he was totally clean when he was a lightweight. I have no idea, but yep. uh, nobody really seems to suspect him of anything back then. And I think his lightweight resume alone is enough to get him yep. into the Hall of Fame. So, yeah, no, I think that's an important distinction. And I think, you know, I understand why. Yeah, like Barry, if if Barry Bonds had stopped playing before he decided to bulk up and become a power hitter, he's a he's a Hall of Famer. And right. you know, and the same Roger Clemens. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's a legitimate. I don't know what the right or wrong is, but. And to deal with the second part of the initial question, I don't think it'll make any difference in terms of the overall voting. Um, Hashtag boxing. Um, (laughs) But it's it's something that I know that I'm 
going to wrestle with a little bit. Yeah, I mean, hashtag boxing is right. You have to judge these guys relative to the cesspool in which they compete. Right. So <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, when, are, exactly. We're suddenly going to start uh, applying strict standards now? Yeah. Come on. Um, But it is fascinating how by the Hall of Fame clearing a lot of old names who weren't getting in off the list and making room for so many new ones, it's made these categories so interesting to discuss. And that really extends to to all of them. Um, And so we we have a few more to discuss. Uh, But one one that we're going to discuss is a completely new category, the the changes uh, in eligibility and inductee criteria in the modern category. Not the only changes this year. Um, For the first time, there are two ballots for female boxers, uh, Trailblazers, whose last contest came no later than 1988, and Moderns, whose last contest came no earlier than 1989. Voters can vote for up to three women in the modern category, and two will be selected. And the inaugural class includes, uh, I'm, I'm just going to read the whole list because it isn't that sure, long, sure, sure. Uh, Leila Ali, Christy Martin, Lucia Riker, Ann Wolf, Samaya Anani, Regina Halmick, Holly Holm, Susie Kentikian, Giselle Salandi, Mary Jo Sanders, Laura Serrano, and Anna Marie Torres. Uh, Kieran, I know you don't have a ballot uh, for this category. I don't either. Uh, I got those names uh, off an article on the internet. Um, but uh, any thoughts on which boxers you would vote for if you did have a ballot? So obviously, number one is Christy Martin. Um, I mean, I think she has to be, you know, and an ideal world. You'd almost want there to be just one modern inductee this year so that Christy Martin gets to be the first one um, mm-hmm. uh, to me. Um uh, my guess is that Layla Ali is probably going to be elected alongside her, and I would vote for her. Although Riker, you know, may give her a run for her money. Um, you know, uh, I guess Anne Wolf would be kind of a, a fan favorite, but you know, outside of that scary KO of Underwood and being known for training James Kirkland, I'm not sure career-wise how much of an opportunity she had to to make a Hall of Fame case. Maybe one day. Um, the one thing, though, I really hope that if not this year, then very soon, I do hope. I'm glad I don't have a vote this year because this is a bit difficult. I do hope that voters support the candidacies of Regina Holmich and Susie Kontikian, who, while female boxing was still a sideshow in, in, in the U.S. and its post-Christy Martin phase particularly, they were main eventing on TV in front of thousands in the arena in Germany and really elevated the sport over there to, to a whole new level and were very, very good to boot as well and, and frequently beat the best Americans in their weight classes. So I hope that Holmich and Kentuckian get a lot of love. And even if they don't get in this year, you know, with the likes of Christy Martin and Leila Ali likely to take up those, those couple of positions that they get in soon. Yeah. I mean, I agree on who the two that are likely to get in are. I, I expressed my opposition quickly last week to uh, this policy of guaranteeing two in per mm. year. And now that we've seen the list, I'm inclined to double down on that position. Um, I mean, I think I'm less uh, on the fence uh, than you are about the possibility of, of a Lucia Riker or someone else sneaking in this year. I think it's I'm almost certain. It'll, yeah, yeah. I, I think mm-hmm. almost certainly it'll be that those two this year, and that's fine. They're both deserving. Although. Um, I would have been somewhat fascinated uh, to see if indeed, if only one was getting in to see if indeed it was Christy before Layla. I tend to agree with you that that it would be. Um, But anyway, once those two are in, assuming they both go in this year, they're, and nothing against, you know, you pointed out, you know, Regina Halmick, Kentucky, and very good fighters. All of these women were very good fighters, but there just isn't really another woman on the entire list who comes close to the, resume and fame combination that it takes for a male boxer to get elected. Mm -hmm. So the hall is basically establishing a women's wing where 
a lot of boxers who never had a single defining fight are going to get into the hall. Um, yeah, it, it is what it is. But I think the move would have been a max of one per year. And mm-hmm. if there's a year where nobody is named on at least 50% of the ballots, I don't think you need to make it 80% like the guys, but uh, you know, a year where nobody gets even 50% support, then I'd be fine with zero that year. I'd rather look up 10 years from now and see seven or eight female boxers in the hall of fame than 20. It just, right. I just, I feel like the standard to, to get in it's, it's fine this year, uh, but it's, it's just going to really drop off. Yeah. And, and, and if the sport does continue to expand and the talent pool deepens, then yeah, as it's shown, he can change the rules 10 years from now. Um, you know, if right. there are more worthy people like knocking on the door and then you can sort of gradually expand it that way. So I, I somewhat agree with you there actually. Okay. All right. So we do both have votes. For both the non-participants and observer categories, um, observers are, as one might expect, basically boxing media. This is the category which you and I will be inducted posthumously in 2072. <laughs> posthumously? I, I, I might be alive. I'll only be, uh, you said 2072? I'll be 97? I'll be a floating brain in a jar somewhere. <laughs> yeah, you'll be dead. I'll probably <laughs> be dead. I'll probably be dead. But I, I don't want to say it uh, with complete certainty. Yeah, I'm convinced I'm going to make it to 2022, but there you go. Um, <laughs> well, and then there's the question of whether there's an Earth in 2072. Well, there is that. You know. There is that, exactly. And and Canastota will be underwater anyway by then. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, uh, non-participants include promoters, trainers, ringside physicians, ring announcers, just about everybody else uh, involved in the sport. Um, and both these ballots are really full. Um, taking observers first. A lot of names here that I think will be familiar even to, you know, not necessarily to the hardest of the hardcore. George, uh, guys like, writers like George Kimball and, and Tom Hauser, um, uh, Alex Wallow, the, the former commentator. Um, You've got TV guys like Jay Larkin and Seth Abraham, photographer Tom Casino, our friend Bob Canobio, uh, David Dinkins, also a, a longtime Showtime guy. I mean, lordy, there's just lots and lots there. Um, we can vote for up to five, but only two get in. Uh, that's a feast just with that. And that's just a sampling of the list. And, and that's a feast of legitimate and worthy Hall of Famers right there, I think. Yeah, and, and it's particularly tough because we know many of these people personally uh right you know and that's true of the boxers too to an extent but it's a little different with the guys that we've worked with and hung out at ringside um and yeah just you, you mentioned most of them but the, the list is so long here that there are even a few writers that uh that i've worked with when i was an editor at ring uh they wrote for me uh ron borges bernard fernandez oh, ron both borges. of them are yeah, on the yeah, list yeah, and, and yeah. uh glenn leach who was an editor yep. who i wrote for for a little while um another showtime guy ferdy pacheco uh, tim ryan um john shepherd who, who started box rec so and you could make a case he's his contributions are in some ways more important than it than a lot of these yep. other guys um even if people don't really know him by name so yeah this is going to be really tough i haven't really considered at all who i'm going to vote for yeah, i might not perfect. vote for five because one thing i tend to do if i know only two are getting in and i really have two favorites i don't like to water mm-hmm. down my vote for vo- by voting for others i don't know if these are the two i'm going to vote for or if these are two of the more than two i'm going to vote for but it would be kind of cool if seth abraham and jay larkin went yep. together uh the, the late jay larkin of course but um 
the fact that that you had a, one of the uh, one one of the guys behind HBO boxing in the '80s and '90s, and one of the guys behind Showtime boxing in the '80s and '90s, it would be very poetic if if we could get the two of them uh, in there together, uh, whether this year or some other year. But yeah, it is just uh, <laughs> a really loaded ballot again. Now that they've cleared out a lot of those names that yep. I used to see year after year that I barely knew who they were, and now it's almost all people that I'm quite familiar with. Yeah. Um, and uh, in the non-participant category, uh, we, which in, in, to some extent overlaps really with the observer right. category. Some of these people are on a fine line uh, of, uh, of why they're in one and not the other. But uh, again, we have plenty of familiar names and, and people that we know, people we've had on podcasts in the past. A lot of those in this category, uh, Lou DiBella, Kathy Duva, Dr. Margaret Goodman, Abel Sanchez, uh, Dan Goosen. Those are probably the most familiar names to our listeners, but uh, there are plenty of others worthy of consideration here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're, you're right to say, because I think Teddy Atlas got in as an observer rather than a non-participant, for example, didn't he? Right, so, I think so. Yeah, so, you know, um, and, and, you know, Lou is obviously a, a classic guy who who really does straddle, like, both yes. these categories. Um, and, and boy, you know, you, you think of Lou, I mean, just for his work as HBO and then as an advisor and then a promoter. I mean, he's one of those guys... Not very many non-boxers have, have had an, the sort of footprint on the modern game that he's had. So mm -hmm. um, I, I'm going to very seriously consider Lou. Um, Kathy Duva, obviously. I mean, yeah. my God, talk about a pioneer. Um, you know, taking over um, that, that business after her husband died and, you know, steering it through rough waters to the point where it's at these days. But, and also, you know, in terms of like, pioneering impact and again it's hard like you said because we know these people and so i'm 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 somewhat particularly inclined to support her but margaret goodman man yep, i mean yep. for being one of the very first to shout from the rooftops about boxer safety even to the extent she earned the ire of many a promoter and sort of got shuffled away from being the ringside physician in nevada um and now of course you know really pioneering you know PED testing um I mean, all those three—they—they they really strike me as people who are real, like, have done for the sport what others have not. Um, and and so, boy, the, out of those on the list, they'd be probably foremost in my mind. But there's already been a bit of a mild PR campaign for Goose, and I certainly mm -hmm. think he's absolutely worthy. He was a terrific promoter. Um, Miguel Diaz is on the ballot. How can Miguel Diaz not be in the Hall of Fame for heaven's sake? Right. I mean, he absolutely has to get in. Um, uh, guys like managers like Samson Lefkowitz, Cameron Duncan. Um, who does his best to avoid publicity, but is one of the all-time great managers. Brad Goodman, um, who's been a really diligent matchmaker. Although uh, I, I will say his name stood out to me as he feels a little young. Uh, I don't know exactly right. how old he is, um, but I was a little surprised to see his name yep. on here because he, I don't know that he's quite been doing it that long. Uh, oh, no, I think but... he has. He's just been doing it since he was a babe. <laughs> I guess so. Uh, but in any case, uh, he, yeah, he, he's he strikes me as one who his, his can time can go in with us come. in 2017. There you go. There you go. Yes. Paul yes. um, <laughs> Kaplan, for God's sake. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, so, yeah, that's, boy, that's an abundance of choices. And you're right. And it's funny, you bringing it up. It does make it a bit harder when you're leaving out people, you know. It yeah. does. You know? Yeah. And, and there are even, I mean, this list is so long with guys I was, guys and 
gals, uh, God, I can't believe I said the word gals, men and women, let's try that, uh, that I would consider voting for, uh, that we didn't even mention Kenny Adams, who was a great trainer, yes. and um, Brendan Ingle, another great trainer. Um, the easiest thing to do on this list, I have no idea who I'm going to vote for. I do know I can quickly cross off two names. Any guesses what they are? No. Uh, Gilberto Mendoza Sr. Oh, of WBA, course. And, and Paco Vacasel. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah I, can, I can cross those up yep. off uh, with a big old, big old hell no next to their names. <laughs> All right, uh, let's uh, wrap this up by looking at some news and some upcoming fights. Uh, next weekend, Alexander Usyk makes his heavyweight debut as he takes on someone called Tyrone Spong on DAZN. Also on that card, Dmitry Bivol meets Lenin Castillo in defense of his light heavyweight strap. Uh, Showtime uh, announced a new edition of Showbox on November 1st, featuring the return of junior lightweight Xavier Martinez. Uh, Erickson Lubin has a new opponent for his October 26th contest on Showtime. Uh, Terrell Gaucher is injured and out. So in comes Nathaniel Gallimore. Uh, Derek Chisora is looking for a new opponent on October 26th after Joseph Parker pulled out with illness. Uh, what else do we have? Uh, Evan Holyfield, son of Evander, one of 27 or so, I think, um, <laughs> will be making his pro debut. Oh, I'm going to get in so much trouble. We'll be making his pro debut on the Canelo. Yeah, the uh, number you threw out there isn't that far off, Kieran. So it's, it's actually not only a good. slight exaggeration. Yeah. Um, he will be making his pro debut on the Canelo Kovalev card on November 2nd. Uh, he'll be fighting a four-rounder in the junior middleweight division. Um, alas, his father will also be returning to the ring, um, albeit in an exhibition in Japan, apparently for charity. I don't think there are any more details than that. Was there a date or anything? Or, in a, or was, I, I just yeah, not supposedly that, I that he said he was going to Japan and doing an exhibition for charity. Um, right. Anyway, look, that's a lot of very disparate things. I should probably pause <laughs> there. Um, uh, please comment at will. <laughs> okay. Um, so one of our listeners uh, told me on Twitter that he wanted me to make a sponge-worthy joke with Tyrone Spong, uh, but I couldn't quite work it out. I thought about it. Uh, it the, the question is really, is Spong Usyk-worthy? And I just couldn't quite make, and plus it's not pronounced sponge. So uh, sorry, person on Twitter who asked me to do that. I have failed you. Uh, but also the answer to the question of whether he's Usyk-worthy is no, not really, but it's Usyk's heavyweight debut. He can get away with a, a softer touch. But I watched some Tyrone Spong. Seems to have decent power. He has a lot of tattoos. And uh, that's about <laughs> the extent of my analysis. Uh, from what I can tell, he'll be much less of a measuring stick than Carlos Takam would have been. Uh, and even he wouldn't have been such a great measuring stick because Usyk is that good. But um, nevertheless, it's Usyk. Uh, so I, I will certainly be tuning in. Uh, bummer about the injury dropout. Uh, Lubin Gachet was a very good fight, but I'll watch Lubin against almost anyone. He's one yep. of my drafted rising stars, after all. Uh, and uh, and same with Chisora Parker. Uh, it's disappointing. That was a solid fight. Not sure if the replacement uh, will be as solid. As for the Holyfields, I'm just a wee bit more interested in the kids' fight than in the old man's. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea if Evan Holyfield has real skills, but I hope he does because it's great for boxing in those rare instances when a son of a legendary fighter turns out to be pretty good himself. Um, and uh, the one other worth mentioning here is Bivol. Uh, you know, Kovalev is fighting Canelo. We have that great fight coming up the following week yep. between Gvozhtik and Beterbiev. With all that fantastic light heavyweight action, it's hard for me to get up for Bivol against Lennon Castillo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess from all of that, 
the, the one thing that I sort of hope, I hope this exhibition, if it actually happens, it's, it's sort of, uh, when I thought of exhibitions, I've always pictured them of like, you know, a couple of old guys in headgear with like foxy boxing gloves, just <laughs> shuffling around, just putting on a, a bit of a show. And then Free Mayweather decapitated uh, right. Tension Nasukara. And I'm like, oh, wait, that's an exhibition? <laughs> um, <laughs> so is it just something that shouldn't be allowed and thus doesn't go on your record? And I have no idea. So I, I hope it's much more of the former than it is of Ander trying to find a way to make, actually make a comeback. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, the other thing, uh, and we'll talk about it. I am excited to see the return of Xavier Martinez on Showbox. We drooled over him mm-hmm. during his last appearance, and uh, I'm quite looking forward to seeing him back. Quite yeah. looking forward. Same here. Um, we also have a pair of PED news items to report. We already had a little PED talk on this episode, but uh, that was uh, with regard to potential Hall of Famers. Now uh, we have to talk about some active fighters. Uh, Avni Yildirim who is in line to fight super middleweight titleist David Benavidez in early 2020, tested positive for a pair of banned steroids in training camp in Big Bear. And Heather Hardy, who recently lost to Amanda Serrano, tested positive for a banned diuretic called perosamide following that fight. Hardy was quick to take to social media to claim the positive test simply detected a prescription drug used to treat kidney and heart problems. I don't know if this is legit or just her version of screaming tainted meat, uh, but that's what she's claiming. Any thoughts on uh, either of these PED situations? Mm, not really much to add. I don't know anything about the, the deodorant situation. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe it's because I like her, mm-hmm. but to me, it kind of does sound like one of those cases where a box is screwed up, Heather Hardy's case. I mean, I don't know. She, she Like you said, she posted that mia culpa on social media it sounded honest to me like and she also said look um am i angry at how some have responded you better believe it am i more mad at myself for this ridiculous oversight absolutely she said it's inexcusable and i'll ask whether it's a screw up or not um i do like heather a lot um the bottom line is that an athlete is responsible for what he or she ingests so um some kind of knuckle wrapping is coming down uh, mm-hmm. some kind of final suspension um, likely headed her way. So I don't really have much to add to that other than that, yeah, I'm perhaps swayed. Um, but yeah, sometimes it is a, sometimes it legitimately is a screw up. I rather suspect it legitimately is a screw up. Right. Um, but let's close with some good news. Uh, we talked last week about John Molina Jr. and how his tendency to make for thrilling fights in which he took three punches to his, as Joe Goodson would put it, mastodon-sized head <laughs> to land one uh, was fun for fans, but had the potential to saddle him with some real issues down the line if he kept doing it. Um, well, following his last to Josecito Lopez last week, uh, the immensely likable Molina, he really is a nice guy uh, to talk to in an interview. Uh, he's announced his retirement. Uh, he ends his career with a record of 30 and 9 with 24 KOs. He told ESPN, uh, there comes a time in every fighter's career when he has to be honest with himself. Um, I'm afraid this career has run its course. It's now time for me to enjoy my time with my beautiful family. I'm so thankful I was given the opportunity to live my dreams and provide a great life for my family doing it. And hopefully this is one of those retirements that sticks. I rather suspect it will be, and that he does indeed get to enjoy uh, a happy and lengthy life with his family and out of the ring. Yeah, if he stays retired, if, 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 uh, then I would say John Molina got out at the perfect time. Yep. Immediately after someone demonstrated to him that he had, I don't want to say nothing left, but next to nothing left, and and that he'd run out of those miracle knockouts. Um, He had an exciting, entertaining career, he pushed it as far as he could. 
Yep. Uh, I hope he does indeed find satisfaction in his life outside boxing with his family and with whatever uh, he does next to, to earn money. Uh, something that uh, provides enough satisfaction for me never to have to see him in the ring again. And I mean that in the best and most complimentary exactly. way possible. Exactly. And he'll always be looked upon by fans who saw him uh, with uh, fondness. I mean, he, he yeah. never left anything, um, you know, in the ring there. So uh, all the best to him. Uh, that will do it for this half century edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week with a look back at the weekend's action, including the aforementioned Usyk and Bivol fights. Uh, there's a title defense by Josh Warrington as well over in the UK that I'm sure we'll talk about. And we will look ahead to uh, what Eric already mentioned, the mouthwatering light heavyweight clash between Alexander Vorstik and Artur Berturbiev. Uh, we may have a guest, hopefully. Fingers crossed. No promises. All will be revealed in due course. But until then, thanks for listening.